You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 46. What a fabulous show I've got for you. My guest in this episode is Anders Sorman Nielsen. Anders is a futurist. He travels the world helping organizations spot trends and find patterns that allow them to more accurately predict the future of their industry and, more importantly, help them develop a plan to survive and thrive in our rapidly changing world. In the conversation you're about to hear, Anders and I talk about disruptive technologies, the way they've impacted industries. He gives us a rundown of the most successful disruptors and how they do it. Also, he tells us which industries are ripe for the picking, the industries that are trading on borrowed time before they're shaken from their complacent foundations and disrupted, perhaps out of existence. And he gives us a very simple formula for picking which ones are next. We also have a great chat about robots. Are they here to steal our jobs and make humans obsolete? Or is our anxiety simply a repeat of the Luddites who smashed textile machines in the 19th century? Anders, of course, sees the issue as more nuanced than that. And again, he gives some brilliant insight into who and how and why certain functions will become obsolete while others remain the domain of humans. Are you ready to take a walk into the future? I hope you enjoy my conversation with Anders Sorman Nielsen. Anders Sorman Nielsen, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Great to be with you, David. Anders, I think I'm nearly up to episode 50 and I've never had a futurist on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you today. It's a fascinating field that you live in. Tell us, Anders, what is a futurist and how did you find yourself in this field? So I should just say, first of all, that my mom has absolutely no idea what I do for a living. Um, this idea of a futurist was certainly not part of the sort of career advice I got at home. And I still think that they uh, might struggle back at home understanding what I do. But basically, a, a futurist, she calls me a glorified astrologer. Uh, <laughs> Which is nowhere near <laughs> she, what it is, I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> oh, we sit down with a tea leaf. So I'll explain it in a little bit more detail in a moment. But yeah, things would have been much simpler for her if I just stayed a, you know, a purebred management consultant or uh, in my former profession as a, as a lawyer instead would have given her uh, much more to talk about with her, with her friends at the afternoon high tea parties, right? But basically, a futurist is in many ways a business strategist, right? Some have described us as a breed of reverse historians. Mm. Our job is very much to look at what are the decipherable trends, both predictable and maybe even unpredictable futures, and help our clients scenario plan for eventualities in the future, right? 
So just to give you kind of a concrete example, some people do think that futurists do engage in the sort of, you know, prediction games. Uh, Certainly we do not do that. We don't pick stocks uh, five years out and all the rest. But what we do do is we build probable scenarios with our clients. So for an example, we do a lot of work in the pharmaceutical sector. You might look at two trends, say the the mobilization of uh, the general populace. In other words, the fact that we're all taking life matters into our own hands through our digital devices, be that wearable technology or even smart devices, our iPhones, et cetera, because we don't get to use our Samsungs anymore in airplanes, et cetera, since the, the, the recent <laughs> warnings. You take a trend like that and you overlay, for example, the other demographic trend to that technological trend, which would be the aging of the, of the population and the rise of M health. You can kind of see that, hey, there's a, there's a pattern towards more and more healthcare happening in people's homes. So what role does, say, a pharmaceutical play a play in that? What kind of materials do they need to equip their GPs with? Maybe that's different. Maybe it's no longer a brochure about the best pill to give to an aging client, but maybe it's about helping them design a really great user interface when that GP actually transacts and interacts with the end client who might be sitting home just like I am today on the northern beaches in uh, Pittwater and getting medical attention from home instead. So they're the kind of scenarios that you might look at. And we, of course, do this over a range of different industries to help them plan for their futures and also kind of stress test the strategies that they have in place, which often leads to us doing strategy reviews for leadership teams or Fortune 500s, non-for-profits, universities, et cetera, around the world. So you find patterns in trends, digital trends, technical trends, and you, you combine them and work out, you know, you, you apply a, a rational thought process to what that might mean for the future. Does being a futurist mean that you also are probably a lover of history? Yeah, incidentally, yes. I mean, this was one of my majors, both at school and later on at university. So I do have a love of history. And uh, of course, uh, one of the things we often get told by our clients, which they love about us, is that you have a wonderful abilities to kind of combine the past, the present and the future together. So we don't just dismiss the past and uh, ask our clients to throw away the you know, the analog baby with a digital bathwater. But we do look at what are the things that have maybe made an organization successful? Are they still relevant? And if so, which bits should be inherited from a sort of a cultural transformation perspective, which often goes down really, really well in terms of people tend to adopt, I guess, our brand of futurism, which is there's a little bit of traditionalism and humanism to over maybe some of our competitors that tend to only hype artificial intelligence virtual reality, augmented reality, and the coming of the robots, for example. So yes, I am a lover of history. And I do believe that uh, that also gives you a little bit of a longer term perspective when we're talking about the future, which makes us not just hype what's happening in the next quarter or go overly enthusiastic about chasing Pokemon for a month (laughs) before, before another trend comes along, you know, so we do take a longer term perspective. Yeah, that, that Pokemon trend, Anders, that didn't last very long. When it came along, I thought that was going to take over the world. Everyone was doing it all of the time, all of a sudden. And until you mentioned it then, I just realized I haven't heard about it for months. Yeah, although there are, of course, businesses who were very quick to jump on, on the trend of Pokemon. And I don't think that necessarily Pokemon Go is, is such an important event in and of itself. Yes, it's important as a groundbreaking kind of innovation in terms of 
seamlessly merging the physical world with the digital world and enabling us to kind of seamlessly engage in this extraordinary magical world of, uh, of magic carps, etc. However, it does open up the floodgates to future, you know, virtual and augmented reality innovations. And we'll certainly see more brands kind of venturing into that space. And you do see innovative businesses taking advantage of it. So, for example, we do a lot of work in the fintech and retail banking sector. You saw in Russia, for example, Sparebank, one of their biggest banks, placing Pokemon around uh, and close by their bank branches to get people going back into retail <laughs> bank branches. And Asia Insurance launched personal injury insurance, specifically called Pokeassurance, for people that got injured while playing uh, Pokemon they Go. really? Wow. It doesn't take long for the commercial sector to latch on to those kind of concepts, does it? Well, again, you know, these were sort of opportunistic, I think, very tactical plays. But uh, again, uh, leading to a little bit of, I guess, PR and hype for those particular brands. So, Anders, you've touched on it already. You are certainly not the type of futurist that sits in a comfortable couch, ruminating, smoking a pipe. You work, we might say, in applied futuristics. You you consult as a strategist for organizations, and you've developed this Digilog concept, the idea of clicks and bricks. Tell us all about that. It's It's intriguing. Well, Digilog, how to win the digital minds and the analog hearts of tomorrow's customers, is the title of my most recently published book. Uh, incidentally, we have another book, Seamless, that's being published by Wiley now and coming out in January 26, uh, 2017, I should say. But uh, Digilog in many ways was sort of the, the precursor and it very much played on this idea of the fusion of the digital and the analog worlds and how increasingly, as I alluded to before, the consumer, the customer, the client, and of course, our internal talent, increasingly our rational information-focused minds are becoming digitized, but our hearts are still very much analog and emotional. Mm. And you can kind of take that idea of Digilog, which many of our customers have, including Westpac, for example, which credits its, its overhaul of its sort of local meeting global, its digital meeting, its analog bank branch transformation which they credit to Digilog to lead to their customer service success. So they apply this concept of the Digilog towards a customer experience perspective. Other of our clients have been using the idea of Digilog from their talent and cultural change and transformation perspective as well to kind of go, hey, great, we need to go into the digital world, but let make, let's make sure that our baby boomers and our digital immigrants in our organization don't feel left behind. Let's make sure that we also acknowledge tradition, wisdom, and experience in this side, this organization, so we don't throw away, as I mentioned, the analog baby with the digital bathwater. And in some ways, it's a precursor to our upcoming book, which is called Seamless, A Hero's Journey of Digital Disruption, Adaptation, and Human Transformation, which I mentioned is coming out next year. As an expert in the field, do you watch some attempts by organizations to modernize themselves in a digital way? Do you see them as very clumsy and, and naive where they, they're not really seeing the purpose behind what they do? They think they know they've got to go digital, but they don't really know what that should look like from the customer perspective. I love a line that I've either read or heard you say where you talk about digital attracts, but analog retains. Yeah, I think um, there are some clumsy uh, 
things that you can see around the internet, for example. I mean, in Digilog, and it was just after the, the sort of upheaval in the worlds of the, the Nokias and the Kodaks, I did speak, and I don't, I'm not going to go on at length about Kodak here because that's been done in Digilog, but one thing that stands out to me, and I do make reference to, and I think it's worthwhile if you're listening to this podcast to go and research it, is to check out the Winds of Change YouTube clip by Kodak, which they put out in about 2006. And it has this actor talking about face recognition and how Kodak is coming back, but in a digital format. And it's actually a really beautiful call to arms. And initially it was developed by their um, marketing and internal communications team. Eventually they released it publicly because it got so popular but it failed to kind of really generate. And I think in many ways, it was a little bit of a, a lame attempt too late to digitally adapt. Mm. And now, of course, courtesy of the internet and uh, courtesy of digital information that will always exist out there in the ether to the great dismay of the board members and the talent inside that organization who didn't change with the winds of change that were clearly happening. But surprisingly, that video is, is quite interesting and they're getting a lot of the sort of emerging technologies right. They just fail to execute on it and to really have a groundswell change or mindset shift inside that organization. So you do see a lot of clumsy attempts. In terms of this idea of um, digital attracts and uh, analog retains, I do think that that's, that still holds true. How long for? It's hard to say because we're now seeing a new generation and I'm kind of when I observe digital natives and how they go about the world I'm not sure how analog their hearts truly are mm, yeah. I mean my my mum does love to point to our research while she doesn't li- always read my love letters to her in the form of uh, how she should uh, revamp her her small retail shop in Stockholm Sweden always we certainly have the ears of Fortune 500 executives, but my, my most difficult client is my mom. She uh, doesn't take your advice, mate. <laughs> she's a very difficult pro bono client. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it's pro bono at least. Yeah, exactly. So um, for her, we kind of launched this idea of digital attracts, analog retains, because she has this idea that in the good old days, clients were loyal. And I always challenge her and I said, mom, you know, it's not that they were loyal, it's that they didn't have a choice. Yeah. Certainly now in the digital world, we have a lot more choice in terms of who we go to. But of course, it is there is still this sense today that, hey, an analog relationship, be it B2B or B2C, that is really deep between a salesperson and, uh, and a buyer or between a, a vendor or a retail brand and a consumer, for example, that that personal connection is really important still. It'll be interesting to see what that looks like for future generations. As my mum points out, she's, she thinks the next generation does have an analog heart because esports are growing at exponential rates around the world. And if you haven't heard of the idea of esports, I have before, not. Exactly. So, what it is, it's essentially digital natives or people who are really into gaming come together in physical arena around the world pay an entrance fee, hang out, and then watch people play computer games uh, on big screens and massive stadium. So, you know, we're still maybe social and analog animals at heart. But in the future, I'm kind of wondering about whether a lot of these analog, nostalgic ideas will 
live on. I do always say that being nostalgic is not the same as being strategic. So while there's while there's certainly value in heritage and, and brand and, and tradition, they constantly now need to be re-examined to see whether they're just, you know, whether they're just leftovers or remnants or whether it truly is something differentiating for an organization in the context of sort of digital attracting new customers, analog can retain existing clients and customers. So that that idea of esports really is that perfect union of digital attracts and analog retains. It's the analog as a analogization of a digital world. It's just proving that we do as human beings still need that that emotional connection. I like the way that you've talked about online shopping, for example, the digital world attracts our rational mind. We can compare prices and and see a very smooth process of buying and having our product shipped to us. But we still, as human beings, need that emotional connection to other human beings, which is why in some ways we still like being in a store. And the question you asked there was, will technology natives have that same need than those other generations like me who learned technology at some point through our life? Will they always need that analogization? Who knows? I love the story you told about your Dell, buying a Dell computer a few years ago and the way that the process for buying a laptop was so smooth. You could choose exactly the computer you wanted. It was shipped really quickly, but at no point did you talk to any human being. And then you gave the example of Apple and the way that they've beautifully merged the digital and analog world. They, they of course, have products that a lot of people love, but they have these amazing stores where you can go and be greeted by a concierge and, and talk to a genius and have a real human connection. That's the that's a company that has got the digital and the analog right. Yeah, for sure. And I think while Apple and Dell are interesting examples, in many ways, you know, we're even seeing Apple now with, you know, the sort of benefit of hindsight as well, you know, looking at, okay, well, great. We have these beautiful personal and digital touch points, but we are seeing that their lack of innovation over the last few years has led to other brands you know, playing catch up. And I think one of the major sort of benefits to Apple right now is that uh, Samsung is suffering uh, immense Mm. brand damage from the Samsung uh, 7. So, you know, prohibiting everybody on flights to use Samsung's is essentially the message uh, because people don't know whether they got a 7 or a 5 or a 4 or a 3 and whether they got a 7S, et cetera. Mm. So, it's doing a lot of brand damage to the whole brand that is oh. Samsung. And I think that's been a major play for Apple recently. Not being um, able to have your phone on a plane has to hurt your brand, hey? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think beyond that, though, what's really occurred in the last few years is this questioning to which bits of your customer facing or your processes inside your organization should you digitize and which ones you shouldn't. And let me just give you an example here. There is this sense that, yes, you know, a friendly smile and, you know, a nice way of greeting your customers, et cetera, goes a really long way to building loyalty. But that's really contextual, right? That might be a super nice thing when you walk into an Apple store, for example, or in certain instances, if you go to, you know, a really nice degustation menu, three star, three uh, Michelin star restaurant, right? You Maybe you want that personal touch. But there's other instances when, frankly, you just don't. And it doesn't matter whether you're a digital native or whether you're a baby boomer or a builder, a veteran, Gen X, Gen Y, whatever. 
So one of our clients, the Hilton Hotels in the United States, they ask themselves this question, where they're truly the human interface is always superior to the digital interface. And what they experimented with and have since launched is a mobile way of checking into your hotel room. So they saw this trend that, you know, in terms of business travelers, you arrive late at night in uh, the destination you are, you're traveling toward, you get to the airport. The first thing you do, of course, is you pull out your digital device as soon as you, if you're using an Apple and not a Samsung, uh, <laughs> you pull that out, you know, you, you start that up as soon as you land to check emails, et cetera. And you're probably thinking about, okay, when am I going to book my Uber? When am I going to check into my hotel? How am I going to get there? Google Maps, Waze, whatever. And in that sort of space of time, by the time you get to the hotel, you're most likely exhausted if it's a late arrival. And frankly, you don't want to stand at the end of the line and see the likes of George Clooney from a movie up in the air, you know, bypassing you as a diamond member. <laughs> while you're spending 20 minutes waiting in the for the supposedly you know, magical interface of the human being that my mom refers to in at reception, right? You'd much prefer to, on your way in the Uber that seamlessly turned up to pick you up at the airport, to check into the hotel, to, through virtual reality, augmented reality, be able to pick the exact view that your room has, how close it is to the gym, how far away from the elevators. And then finally, when you get to the hotel, you bypass the entire line and then you use your smart device as the key that through NFC technology or RFID actually just opens the door. And in many ways, that's more, much more empathetic. That's much more humane because you're taking, you're not focusing on the whole process that the hotel wants you to go through. So they get your credit card details, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera but they're focusing on the end customer in a very humane way, in a way that the digital can deliver that humans couldn't. So I would kind of argue that, you know, in the future, do we really want the kind of analogization, right? I would say that there's, there's bits of organizations and certain custom touch points that certainly should be better left in the digital world. As you say, it's I contextual, say, isn't it? And migrated, my apologies, migrated into the digital world. Yeah, as you say, it's it's very much contextual and, and there's a nuance to it. It's not all or nothing. It's not digital is always better and analog is always better. It's where are you? Are you just getting off a plane late at night and you just want to get to your room? I, I love the system that you just described there. I find myself flying into places late at night and having to line up and, and check in where all you want to do is get to your hotel room. I love that kind of use of technology. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. Hey, uh, Anders, earlier you mentioned Kodak, of course, the quintessentially disrupted company a number of years ago. The moment we all started walking around with smartphones, taking photos and uploading them to our computers was the moment Kodak was in trouble. There's another episode of disruption that has really interested me over the last few years, and you've also mentioned that, the Uber and taxicab disruption. I was a fascinated observer to that. I was, I think, you know, I, I maybe an early user of Uber, and I was always so disappointed to fly around to different cities in Australia that some had Uber, some didn't. Now it's pretty much uniform, thank goodness. What was most fascinating, though, was watching the taxi industry's reaction to being disrupted. They didn't say, 
wow, it's finally arrived. We should have seen this coming. So how about now we investigate what technology they're using? How is it benefiting their customers? And how can we make that work for us? Leveraging what we've already got, which is our brand recognition. They didn't do that. Well, at least they didn't do that in in my state, in Brisbane and Queensland. What they did instead was spend millions of dollars in negative ad campaigns against Uber. They spent millions of dollars lobbying backward-thinking right-wing politicians trying to get Uber banned from their state. They are, I guess, the case study in how not to respond to being disrupted. Yeah. I mean, and and to be honest, that, yeah, I agree with you. And, And then having said that, in some parts of the world, that type of response has succeeded, at least temporarily. Well, it can and only be temporarily, that. right? I was speaking at the International Franchise Association at their annual conference, Frantech, in Austin, Texas, last month, and keynoting there on this idea of seamless technologies. And I arrived in Austin, which is usually quite a progressive city, but there, Uber has been banned, right? right? As it has in parts of Germany, for example, based on pre-internet laws that apply to the taxi industry and obviously favor the incumbents. But in Austin, I I made this uh, kind of opening statement at the Frantech event for the IFA in Austin that, hey, arriving at the airport felt like for the first time now in many, many years, like you were taking a step back to like 2010, 2011. (laughs) It's like a time machine. Right. or yellow cabs. Right. And you just weren't able to, as everyone does now, go on the Uber app to seamlessly have someone turn up and pick you up. Having said that, while the taxi industry has been successful in keeping Uber or kicking Uber out momentarily mm. out of Austin, they will be coming back of for course. sure. There are a number of local initiatives instead that provide the same types of service to, to Uber. But I would say beyond the taxi industry, and while, while they chose one of many responses that are, you know, potential strategic responses to disruption. One, of course, is to fight it, you know, through regulation and through lobbying, etc. There are many others that would have been available to the taxi industry, as you pointed out. One of them would have been to just look and learn from mm. their new competitor, which happens in a bunch of other industries when they're being digitally disrupted. But I would also just point out that there's other other players and other industries, the taxi industry is not the only industry that will be disrupted by Uber. Already, for example, Verify, which is the second largest expense reporting system in the United States, reported that Uber now, we thought of it initially as a consumer app, is now the largest largest line item, or Uber is the, is the most popular brand for business travelers to be using in North America. So more people who are on business travel in America now use Uber than use both taxis and or rental companies like Avis, Hertz, Budget, which are also massively, we don't hear about this in the media because they don't have a strong uh, lobbying organization (laughs) behind them. But those guys are losing massive market share to Uber, of course, as well. Because Uber has given us more options, as you say, than just replacing our taxi trips with an Uber trip. It's almost given us the option of replacing it with a hire car. I mean, you've pointed that out. In my family, Uber has given us the option of replacing it with a second car in our home. We just run on one car. And for those moments where we would have otherwise used our second car, we just Uber it because it's easy, 
it's cheap and it doesn't feel like a dirty experience like the old taxi experience did. So I'm not surprised to hear that it, that Uber's having an impact further afield than just in that direct taxi competition. Absolutely. And I think it's another example of where you go, oh, well, you know, a friendly human being, a friendly taxi driver. Mm. And I go, really? Or is the fact that there is this beautiful digital layer yes. to the interaction yes. and a digital way of building a webutation and digital trust between driver and, of course, passenger, and not just the passenger, but the passenger's family, as you point out, which provides transparency to when you're going to get home, where you are, whether you've stepped into the vehicle, et cetera. All of those aspects, the digital interface takes care of in a way that's deeply empathetic with a passenger in a way that the human could never have delivered yes. it before. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's again, that perfect blend. I, what I love about Uber is they've, they have taken out of the loop that non-value-adding middleman that the taxi industry tried to maintain. I mean, that was a value-add decades ago when we couldn't communicate directly with the driver. But now, of course, we can. We don't need them taking out a chunk from our transaction with the driver. We have Uber now. I, I love it. So tell us, Anders, what is the next industry to be disrupted? We know that there are some in the process of being disrupted. Tell us what's the new fresh thing that most of us have not even thought of yet. Well, I think where you need to look for this is just in what industries do we as consumers and customers experience a lot of friction? Mm. That is the place to kind of start. Where are there inefficiencies? Wherever there are inefficiencies, there's most likely a digital layer that can make it better. Mm. But let me give you let me give you a few examples of industries we work very closely with where we're monitoring and also providing proactive strategies for also the incumbents to get out on the front foot and not stop, right, other competition from innovating, not just focus on regulation while the startups are focusing on innovation, but they're proactively learning and evolving. So I should just say before I go there that Uber, of course, is not going to just stop at the transportation industry, right? They think of themselves as a company that sort of exists at the convergence of logistics and lifestyle. Mm. But Uber also now in the United States have teamed up with Betterment, which enables seamlessly their drivers, so Uber drivers, to contribute a certain amount from every ride that they've completed to their Roth 401k plan, so their superannuation yeah. style right. uh, financial planning for their future. So now they're also in financial services. Of course, they're a payment company because we don't think about which card we have stored in the app, right? We just think of it as an Uber payment, right? Yeah. Of Amex, MasterCard. So they're, of course, disrupting the credit card industry. And beyond that, of course, they're now also in food and food delivery. So we'll see a lot of other industries, not just having a sort of Uberization or a new startup that we've never heard of eating their lunch tomorrow, but of course, Uber is just such a disruptive innovation. And this is really what we spoke about. David Rorsheim, who's the managing director for Uber in Australia, and I spoke at a panel for one of our clients at Westpac at one of their business trends event. And he really spoke very clearly about the fact that they are seeking to digitally democratize the world and to have you know car ownership be a thing of the past. Mm. And if you think of innovators like GoGet, for example, which made car sharing something mainstream, for every GoGet car in Brisbane, Melbourne, or Sydney, it takes nine owned cars off the streets. Yeah. You can imagine the automotive industry thinks about that. So I'm just 
already mentioned another three, four industries that will be digitally disrupted by the likes of Uber over the next few years. One industry we do a lot of work with is in real estate. You think about whether you're a landlord or a tenant or whether you're a vendor or a buyer in the real estate game. For many people, and I just witnessed this with my girlfriend's mother now who's selling, uh, selling her property and moving into another house, just the stress and the friction and the legalese and the waiting periods and the settlement periods. And I'm a lawyer, right, by background. And I just look at this and I'm like, it's a psychological nightmare for her to complete this process. And it's ripe for the picking, isn't it? Ripe for the picking for disruption. Yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine a future where, you know, most of this will be done via FISBO or via you know, the digital interface, why use a real estate agent, why have middlemen or middle women. So any industry really where there's friction and where there's middlemen and women that are not adding value to the relationship between buyer and seller, they are going to be digitally disintermediated. Their days Uh, are numbered. Yeah. And unless you as a real estate agent add real value from an educational perspective, through great content marketing, through great inbound information to both sides of that relationship, you're going to be made redundant and you're irrelevant for the future. The same applies, of course, to real estate agents who look after rental properties. Because again, you as a landlord are paying a pretty nice little sum of money for someone to really just rent out and be the sort of gatekeepers who hold the key to give to a new tenant. But you think about Airbnb, for example, Airbnb is a property management service and it exists purely online. Yeah. So it's not going to be long until the likes of Airbnb, the likes of realestate.com.au or domain.com.au, for example, just enable moms and pops to kind of be the people who look after maybe some properties in and around their area, just like Airtasker, for example, is doing similar things to TaskRabbit overseas, enabling people to kind of sell their spare time in an on-demand economy to Look after a house, clean up a house, and make sure it's ready for inspection, et cetera. But that could all happen via a digital interface instead. That's fantastic that you're, insight. You're, you're absolutely right. That, or as you say, that it all makes sense. And I love, I love the categories of things. Essentially, any industry that still has a non-value-adding middleman, your days are numbered. Any industry in which there's still an inordinate amount of friction and inefficiency that adds stress to any transaction the days there are numbered, you will be disrupted. I can't help but think then, Anders, banking. Is there any other industry that has more friction, more inefficiencies, more of the value given to a non-value-adding middleman than the bank industry? I know there have been attempts to create online banks and there are some, some medium successes at that. But here in Australia, essentially the big four banks still dominate the industry. Why is that? Why have not the market, the consumer moved to these new age online banks? Well, I would just say we have, and it's just a matter of time before the market share is significant, right? right. Yep. Um, it's been said, and there was some research done on this, and we do a lot of work in retail banking and that sector around the world. It's been said in the UK that you're more likely to divorce your life partner than you are to divorce your bank. Yeah, it's just so so hard for people to move on, isn't it? So, you know, and that research was done in the late 2090s. So maybe it was true then. But actually now it becomes simpler and simpler 
to start banking in new ways. Already back in the 90s, Bill Gates said in the future, you'll no longer need a bank, but you'll still need to do the activity of banking. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you actually need a bank to complete it. Yep. Let me give you some examples of this. I was speaking at a conference in Toronto recently for Scotiabank. So they're the top, one of the top three banks in Canada. And I was talking about the fact that here in, the, you know, here in Australia, in the last year from February or in 2016 now, from February to October, Acorns, which is an app, had 100,000 people sign up and activate accounts via Acorns. Mm-hmm. Acorns is essentially a service. It's an app that sits on your phone. And what it does is whenever you spend anything on a credit card, it rounds it up to the nearest dollar and it invests the difference automatically into a robotically managed, a robo advisory portfolio uh, that oh, is managed on your behalf. And then you can, of course, idea. and of course you can just set it to automatically make deposits and uh, contribute a little bit of a top up as well on a mm. weekly or fortnightly or monthly basis as well. By the way, this really freaks out my financial advisor, Gavin, because at the moment, the robotic advisor is getting me better returns than my human advisor. (laughs) I bet Gavin's freaked out by that. (laughs) So yeah, I told Scotiabank about that. And I'm like, why did a fintech player do this? Now, any bank in Australia would have been super happy if they'd been able to sign up 100,000 new transaction Mm. or savings or superannuation accounts, which is, of course, the way that Acorns is heading they would have been super happy with 100,000 new acquisitions. Acorns did all of that without any bank branches, and essentially they just did it via Facebook promotions, targeting heavily Australian millennials to get them to sign up for this thing, which is frictionless. It is seamless. They're taking away the friction between what many millennials think of as this kind of big thing, you know, going to see a financial advisor, setting up a financial, you know, a separate account, making order, automatic deposits, etc. Yeah, All of that is just friction, right, that the banks have put on us for years. But instead, Acorns just make, makes that hugely empathetic through beautiful design. It just takes a matter of minutes. And of course, this is not financial advice to any of the listeners. It's just saying that there are fintech players like this now getting big signups and of course, this all happened from February to October this year, 2016. I love um, that idea of Acorn. I think that's a fabulous idea. Yeah, and of course, so when it comes to banking, yes, we heard the old stats from, from the UK in the 2090s, but back then it was hard to shift. Nowadays, it's not necessarily that we have to shift from like NAB to Westpac or from CBA to ANZ, right? That's not the choice we're facing. Like I'm still with my primary bank. But I'm adding all these other layers of services. I'm adding acorns for my superannuation and my savings and my investment portfolio, right? I'm adding transfer-wise so I can bypass my primary bank so that if I need to transfer money or receive money from overseas, I bypass the entire banking system and get better rates, right? Cutting out the middleman because it's all done via peer-to-peer, but then authorized with all the authorities and all the encryption you need to make it safe. I'm bypassing the banks and the credit cards every time I use something like Uber. Why? Because I no longer say that it's okay to step into a taxi and then get charged 10% by a cab charge as a surcharge to my fare to the airport. So, you know, through all of these, and yes, while there's still a credit card in the background in terms of the Uber app, 
that's neither here nor there. I'm bypassing the whole legacy of the mm. old FPOS machine in the car that was the taxi. So it's not that we have to make this like shift from a major bank to another one. It's just that we're adding other things where the banks suck. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I love that description. You've educated me because before we had this conversation, I was thinking, oh, it's a case of leaving one of the big four banks and finding one of these online bankers, having the trust in that and, and going through the pain of changing your accounts everywhere. But it's different to that. As you said, it's a case of adding these new layers of services that essentially bypass the banks. When you look at the behavior then of the traditional banking sector, is it an arrogance? Is it a naivety? Are they just squeezing the last drop out of the old paradigm or, or are they in the background making the type of changes that suggest they're aware that they are about or in the process of being disrupted? So there's this sense that there is a level of apathy, ignorance, and yes, maybe just pure arrogance mm. when it comes to the incumbents, because they do often think of, and they often do ignore these little fintech players. But I go, for example, when I was in Canada lecturing about this three weeks ago, I do go, why on earth did no bank launch this in a mobile friendly fashion? Because Bank of America 10 years ago launched a project where essentially the essential idea was keep the change, right? You spend money on your credit card, you take the difference up to the nearest dollar and you invest it either in philanthropy or in your investment account. Yeah. However, it was never translated into the mobile era. So this is back in the mid 20 noughties. Yeah. And they got huge credit for this idea, right? It was responsible. It was tapping into this sort of easy nudging effect of automatically making it easy for customers to contribute more to their Roth accounts, et cetera. And I know in Australia, for example, we are hugely underfinanced when it comes to our retirements, right? Mm. So this would have cottoned on. You would have thought, but the banks just didn't care. Yes, right. That's amazing. And instead, a fintech player got out and got on the front foot and took that space. Yeah. And Acorns really owns that space now. And only now are the banks sort of playing catch up with it. I love it. I, I think so, it's a great course, idea. And of course, it's easier as well. If you're just a digital layer, no one really takes you seriously, then it might be easier to kind of build this layer on top of the already existing infrastructure between ANZ, Westpac, CBA, NAB, et cetera. Because of course, you know, for Acorns to function, they actually need to collaborate with the banks, which the banks have been happy for Acorns to tap into transaction or savings accounts, credit card companies have been on board, et cetera, right? So they do need from the very beginning, even though they're disruptive, they also need to be collaborative. I'll give you a contrast frame around this, right? What can happen when heritage brands and incumbents actually do innovate? So in Sweden, which is where I'm originally from, the major banks in Sweden decided to get out on the front foot when it comes to disruption. They asked themselves the question, is it better to be disrupted from outside or from inside? Mm, that's a good question. And when they looked at the kind of areas where new technologies would be disrupting the banking space, they saw payments, right? And so they said, somebody is going to disrupt peer-to-peer -peer payments or small transactional payments. I'll give you an example. You go out to a restaurant with, restaurant with a bunch of mates, there's always the issue of how to solve the bill at the end of a meal. Yeah. Now, nowadays, of course, it shouldn't have to be that hard, right? 
So the major Swedish banks thought that's a space a fintech is going to target. Mm-hmm. So they teamed up together with the Reserve Bank of Sweden. They built something called Swish. It required a collaboration between competitors, the incumbents, the major Swedish banks and the Reserve Bank, heavy legacy systems to talk to one another. They built something called Swish together with one of our Swedish clients called HiQ, an IT consulting firm. And Swish now is essentially enabling what was already happening, which is that one mate picks up the bill, he or she pays it on the credit card to get his Qantas or his SAS or his Virgin or New Zealand points. And then everybody else swishes him or right. her the money. So it's just sending a very, very quick message, either via the Swish app or via text message, whatever amount you're owing on that bill. And it's all happening via the mobile interface. Swish has now been adopted by a third of all Swedes, wow. including, including baby boomers. A lot of businesses are now using it. Yeah. And in Sweden, it's the most well-known digital brand ahead of both Google and a little Swedish digital unicorn called Spotify. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. And as you say, it has that key ingredient. There used to be friction in that situation. So a disruptor was going to come along and take away that friction. Someone got on the front foot, one of the established institutions. That's a great story. And as I love talking disruption with you, mate. It is a really fascinating topic and you are a fountain of ideas I would never have stumbled across otherwise. But I do want to go in one different direction before I give you your day back. I'm going to ask you the most obvious question in the world. Are robots going to steal my job? Now, I know there are two schools of thought and maybe you can educate me. There might be more. There's the, the, the obvious school of thought that, hey, this is the 19th century all over again when textile workers, who we, we now know as the Luddites, smashed machines that were going to take their job. But of course, the Industrial Revolution led to new jobs and new industries, and it led to the rise of the knowledge worker. Or the second school of thought is that it's not going to be like that at all, that this wave of technology is different, that we've gone past the tipping point And this time, there is no other side. There'll be no new jobs, no new industries that need humans because the machines are just too smart. Where do you sit on this question? Well, maybe it's not one of the two schools of thought, but maybe a kind of a third space or maybe an integrative thinking space. I thought you might say that. (laughs) I do think that there is a space for humans in the future, for sure. (laughs) Uh, Whether it's, you know, contextual thinking, strategy, creativity, innovation, the human touch, uh, artisanship, craftsmanship or craftswomanship, you know, back to the kind of farm to table, you know, value adding fundamentally human things that robots still largely suck at, right? (laughs) Those things, certainly, if you start excelling in those spaces, you know, while teaming up with the robots, (laughs) you're going to be in a good space, right? However, anything that's rote, anything that's repeatable, anything that's process will eventually go to the robots. I mean, I was working with one of our clients in the Netherlands in early October, and on the way to the airport, we went past ING Bank. Now, ING Bank in Australia was known as ING Direct, one of the first Mm -hmm. online, pure play online banks here. But in the Benelux countries, they actually have bricks and mortar branches. Because of blockchain technologies, which of course can do a lot of the back-end functioning of banks, Mm -hmm. 
it's been said by JP Morgan Chase that up to 50% of banking jobs could be up for the robots to grab over the next 10 to 20 years. And that particular week, driving past ING Bank, they had just announced redundancies of 5,500 people. And the spokesman at ING Bank said that we have to adapt. As a consequence, it means that we can adapt with a lot less people. Yeah. And that is just, for me, such a telltale sign that if you're in a job and you're not engaged, if you're in a job and you haven't learned and upgraded your skills, if you're in a particular niche and you're just sort of hoping that the unions are going to look after you, you're... You're a Luddite. You, yes. I was going to say something worse in French, okay. but that's fine. No, no, give it, to, give it to us in French. I won't understand it anyway. Aussie French. I think you understand the gist. So you have to start upgrading your skills. You have to make sure that you change your game because otherwise you're going to be out of your job. And I do think that in the future, yes, the robots will be taking a lot of jobs. And I do think that this time it is different. Yes, we'll find other ways to occupy human beings, but this is not just a repeat, right? It's not just a repeat of the physical world when we moved from, say, you know, textile workers to textile machines, or Mm -hmm. when we moved from humans and horses working the farms to having tractors or precision technology doing it instead. Because people still moved, you know, from rural to urban, and they created the necessity for new jobs, yes, right? Yes, This is like, this is not a tractor taking your job. This is your job moving to the cloud yeah, or to a data center up in the Arctic Circle. This is different because it's in this cyber world that many people fail to comprehend. And while if you were a Luddite, it was easy to smash a machine, it wasn't very efficient, mm-hmm. it's very hard to try and smash the cloud. <laughs> Yet some will try. So if you're working in a job that is easily repeatable and doesn't take a lot of thought, it's a low-skill job that is a repeatable motion, then you are in desperate trouble. If you're working in a job that adds value, that adds the human element of empathy, then you're probably looking pretty good as long as you learn to integrate the work that you do with the machines. Yeah, I'll give you an example, right? My girlfriend, Nicole, she has a fashion label. She used to work for Yves Saint Laurent in Paris. Now she has a fashion label that does swimwear in Australia and around the world, right? Small business. It's called Ephemera. Check it out. And she is able to, as an artisan, as a fashion designer, do something that is beautifully designed, attention to detail, produced in Australia with a European design aesthetic, and she distributes a piece of Australian culture, swim, salt, the you know, sand, the ocean to the world. How does she do that? By really clever marketing, right? She's using all the tools at her disposal, whether it be Instagram, whether it be MailChimp, whether it be the digital technology that she runs her online store to. But at the same time, she also faces up at all the major fashion events around the world to make sure that she greets her retailers, be it Lane Crawford in Hong Kong, for example, in person as well. So she brings both the human element 
the craftswomanship and of course, digital technology enables her to also distribute it and to connect with a much wider audience than she would have been able to do in previous industrial eras because she's partnering with the robots as well. Yeah, that's a great example, mate. A great example and a great seamless plug all at the same time. Now, tell us, Anders, I don't know, why are we, I don't even feel worried about this. Why aren't we then, if robots are going to take a lot of our jobs, they're not going to take the artisans amongst us, the thinkers, the, the people who are empathetic to the human condition, but they're going to take a lot of jobs. Why aren't we looking forward to this? Why aren't we looking forward to a time in the near future where we'll all work less, if at all? A time when our needs are met and many of our wants by robots completely and we can settle into the comfortable life of self-actualization. Why aren't we looking forward to that? Well... I mean, you know, I'm not a psychologist as such, but I do look at someone like my mum, right, that I've said she's one of our most difficult clients. And in many ways, my previous book, Digilog, was very much written as a love letter to mum saying, hey, you can still innovate. She runs a 100-year-old family business in Stockholm, Sweden. It's a menswear retailer. She's the third generation owner operator. And I just saw how digital disruption, roboticization, automation, online retail was just obliterating her business mm -hmm. and the legacy of her father and his father before him. And mum doesn't like change, right? And a lot of her identity, if I'm going to get a little bit of pop psychological here on you, is as this hardworking woman. In Sweden, we have an expression, carrying the milk. Yeah. And it has this sort of Lutheran connotation to it. It's yeah. like blood, sweat, and tears. If you work hard, you know, by Friday or every fortnight or on payday, you're going to get paid. That old Lutheran notion doesn't hold true anymore. Mm, yeah. If you don't work smart, you're screwed. Yeah. And for my mom, she doesn't see the difference between working hard and working smart. So she yeah. refuses to use technology. Well, we've gotten her down the technological path now. But for many years, she just refused it. And instead of seeing that, hey, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a freight train that coming, that's coming towards me. She would just invest her life savings into essentially upkeeping a business model and a way of thinking that was perfectly suited to a world that no longer exists. Yeah. So it's not, not investing in, in working harder is not the answer. No, absolutely. But I do think that there's this essential human idea of, you know, carrying stuff and doing menial labor and just like working the land. And that over centuries, over millennia, we've derived a lot of a lot of our identity from. You just see it with, you know, farmers, for example, in Australia. I mean, farmers around the world now have the highest suicide rate of any profession. Mm. And you look into some of the psychological studies around why that is, and it is hugely tied to identity, family, business, sense of working worth, the land, exactly. And so when people lose that there is going to be a huge psychological crisis. So I think that's one of the reasons people mm. are not welcoming the age of the robots or the age or the second machine age, as Brynjolfsson and McAfee from MIT call it. Well, Anders, I don't have that burden, mate. If robots wanted to come along and take away my work and make my life a life of leisure, I would be more than happy. There'd be no loss of self-worth here. Anders, you're a futurist. What is your idea of utopia? What is my idea of utopia? 
I think, um, well, you know, utopia, the definition of utopia is that it can never exist, right? So it's a little bit like chasing the end of the rainbow. No, it's your perfect but, world. You can create your utopia. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think I'm pretty privileged and, and, and fortunate already to, if I focus in on, on my own little space, you know, today I'm talking to you from the water at Pitt Water overlooking uh, Church Point and Scotland Island and... Um, at the same time, doing a bit of work, it's given me a necessary little break from my average of 240 international travel days around the <laughs> world every year. Wow. But, you know, being grounded, being out in nature for me is, is, is a lovely piece of, piece of utopia. If I describe it on a kind of grander, bigger scale, which is perhaps what you're looking for, is an open world without borders where meritocracy rules, mm-hmm. where legacy and heritage your family's name doesn't matter but what you bring to the table and whether you're a good person and you work smart and innovatively and creatively that that truly matters if i look at developments this year in terms of protectionism borders the building of walls nationalism you know making america great again mm. this sort of sense of nostalgia and that the good old days are just around the corner is frankly idiocy Mm. and that is not the way of the future and we cannot go back and reclaim the past so that for me would be dystopia which perhaps throws light on the fact that in an open world in a world of rationale of good thinking of inquisitiveness creativity enthusiasm where we're all part of one global economy and one global ecosystem environmentally as well, that that sort of mindset shift would would place us in a very good space. Of course, hopefully all supported by our unterlords, the robots who enable us to just chill Kick out back. and have, have a good barbecue on the beach at Bill. Well, instead. And as sign me up for your version of Utopia, mate. I think it sounds delightful. And you brushed against it there in some ways around the world politically at the moment, we're moving backwards away from what you have described as utopia, which is a whole different sad story. All right, I've got three, no, I've got four really quick questions and then I'm going to let you go. Anders, are you ready? Yeah. Tell us about the Saturday night you most look forward to. A big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Intimate dinner with my closest friends. Jeez, almost everybody says that. All right, now tell me, I think I know the answer to this question already. Are you more likely to be bogged down in the detail or get caught daydreaming? (laughs) Yeah, it's probably (laughs) the latter. All right, question number three. Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Oh, I think it's about a 50-50. I do love analytics and data and charts and trends, but at the same time, I do cross-check things with a level of instinct and intuition as well. All right. And very last question, Anders, you're going on a road trip. Do you like to book the hotels, plan the route, know exactly where you're going, or do you just get in the car and drive? Well, I think with all the digital technologies available to us now, it's very easy to be spontaneous. So mm. uh, it's uh, it's the latter. I put on ways. I do a bit of four squaring on the way, and uh, put in some of my hotel last booking apps, and uh, enabled me to go on a spontaneous vacay. A very futurist approach to my standard four questions. 
Anders Sorman Nielsen. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Fantastic. You got my little version of a Myers Briggs well psychometric done, profile. Mate. Well done. You're the first guest who has ever worked out what I'm doing. That's <laughs> good very, questioning. Good questioning. Yeah. Very good, Anders. Thanks, mate. I really enjoyed our chat. Fantastic. You too. And that was Anders Sorman Nielsen. Fascinating, wasn't he? We've heard, of course, of the great disruptors of our time. The smartphone, Uber, Airbnb. But Anders, with his terrific insight, was able to take us to a new level of understanding, a new way of seeing what's going on all around us. And how about that formula for which industries are next? Any industry or any transaction that has unnecessary friction or inefficiencies, any commercial relationship that causes undue stress on the consumer, their days are numbered. And I loved Anders' version of Utopia. Sign me up for that world. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the podcast page for this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. You can connect with me on all the usual places and I'll be back soon for another episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.